Good morning. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Century Radio, WWDB 860 AM, live from Philadelphia. It's a beautiful day outside today. While we have a lot of dark, dreary news to talk about emanating from the Middle East, it doesn't seem like a week goes by since the beginning of this program where there have not been explosive developments emanating from the region, affecting you here at home, and almost more importantly, our interests around the rest of the globe. First off, I'd like to tune into the Khashoggi affair, something that has survived for the last 24, 24-hour news cycles, a story which has been in the pattern of Andrew Breitbart, a drip, drip, drip campaign associated with global media. A recap. First, on October 1st and 2nd of this year, a Saudi journalist, a former Muslim Brotherhood member, friend of Osama bin Laden, Jamal Khashoggi, walks into the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul, ostensibly to get documents for his pending wedding to his Turkish fiance. Five hours pass, and Khashoggi's fiance calls the Turkish police. He entered into the consulate, but he did not exit. At the same time, we learn from later media reports that a Saudi hit team comprising of 15 of the most deadly bodyguards associated with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman from the kingdom entered the consulate prior to Khashoggi's arrival. We now have more disturbing details regarding the account. One, Mr. Khashoggi entered into the consulate and the Saudis knew that he was coming. He had already arrived there a few days beforehand and was told to return when his documents would be ready. Two, we understand that there was an impersonator who was meant to resemble Mr. Khashoggi who left the consulate through the back door, dressed in his clothing. The way that they were able to find this out is he was wearing a different pair of sneakers. And three, the Saudis have now rounded up 18 suspects associated with his murder and are denying that this was ordered or sanctioned by the highest vessels of the state. The aftermath, these individuals are now in jail. Saudi Arabia is facing international condemnation, with over 21 Saudi nationals having their visas to the United States and United Kingdom revoked. And more so, the Turks have been using this as a way to pivot from their misbehavior regarding journalists. Turkey itself is a country that has over 300 Turkish and foreign journalists rotting away in Turkish prisons. More so, the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, finds himself in a situation where he is now the darling of the international media because he is being seen as the protector of Khashoggi's legacy. I find this abhorrent. I find this disgusting. And the fact that the Turks are able to benefit off of this at the Saudis' expense, not like the Saudis are necessarily acting in their own righteous way, is showing what happens when two Sunni superpowers are able to go up against one another. One, Turkey and to Saudi Arabia, the former having the last two years of being in economic doldrums and facing international condemnation for their overreaction to a, I think, fake coup attempt in July of 2016, which was meant to embolden the president, Erdogan, and also to put him into a position of even greater power within his country by consolidating all the state organs under his control, and the latter, the Saudi Arabia, or, or, or in this case, the Saudis themselves who have been able to try to pursue a track for reform since July of 2017 when Mohammed bin Salman was put in power. But now that reform process is dead in its tracks. It's funny how one act of barbarity 
can stop an entire country's progress in coming out to get a little bit closer to the West. So what is the United States supposed to do in this case? We find that one, President Trump has been trying to wait until the Saudis have finished their investigation. But the Saudi investigation is more of a way for them to try to pivot away from this disaster in their foreign policy, where they were trying to suppress their own domestic condemnation of some acts under the crown prince while extending their long hand abroad, having only to see it blow up in their face. Two, the United States should not forget the atrocities that the Turks are carrying out, whether it's the murder of individuals, many innocent, some guilty, in Southeast Turkey and their effort to oppress their Kurdish minority groups, the roundup of over 100,000 Turkish citizens now finding themselves rotting away in prison along with those journalists, but not just journalists. We have opposition politicians, former members of the military, deans, professors, and other liberal activists who have spoken out against the oppression of Erdogan, the president of that country. And the United States should not all of a sudden go soft on Turkey because of what the Saudis did in Istanbul. More so, America has to look at its wider strategic goals. There are many threats facing America and its allies in the region, and it's better to keep the Saudis close than to cast them aside and allow them to fall into the embrace of awaiting China and Russia. More so, we have to understand that there is a general complacency right now from the foreign policy establishment as it relates to where Saudi Arabia goes. Do we end the U.S.-Saudi relationship, or do we try to get closer and encourage the kingdom to reform even more in the wake of this act of murder? Those questions we'll try to answer on this program later today. First, Danny Seaman, director of the Israel Victory Project in Jerusalem, and second, Winfield Myers from Campus Watch. We'll be back with them after these messages. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM. A little piece of news before we get to our first guest, Mr. Danny Seaman, reporting live from Jerusalem. The Middle East Forum last week 
released a press release as it pertained to a letter from members of Congress written by Ted Budd, Chuck Fleischman, Matt Gates, Paul Gosar, Debbie Lesko, Barry Loudermilk, and Walter Jones on the issue of a federal investigation into Islamic Relief, the largest Islamist charity in the United States, if not the entire West. Islamic Relief, with branches in more than 20 countries and founded by students affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, has received at least $80 million from Western governments and international bodies. Citing an extensive report by MEF, these members of Congress issued a letter to the directors of the FBI, the IRS, and the Office of Personnel Management. As quoted from the letter, they write, As members of the legislative branch, we have a vital role in ensuring taxpayer money is spent wisely and certainly to ensure that such money is not spent on entities that are subsidizing terrorism. If the United States government has information suggesting criminal or extremist activity by Islamic Relief, it is critically important that Congress be informed so we can make decisions concerning any funding that might go to this organization. The members of Congress write later, that the extensive report referred to a June 2018 MEF study on Islamic Relief's extremism and terror connections. It revealed the response from the Office of Personnel Management to a Freedom of Information Act request. The response says, We are withholding the records as they were compiled for law enforcement purposes and their disclosure could reasonably be expected to interfere with an ongoing enforcement proceeding. By, for example, suggesting the scope of investigation and alerting potential subjects as to the nature of the government's evidence and strategy. So why would the U.S. government be investigating a charity that has been able to obtain 501c3 nonprofit status as it relates to its activity in raising funds here in the United States and dispersing it overseas? For years, allegations of extremism and terrorism have dogged Islamic relief. For instance, in 2014, the United Arab Emirates designated Islamic Relief Worldwide as a terror organization due to its links with the violent Muslim Brotherhood elements in the Middle East and specifically in Egypt. In 2015, Egyptian prosecutors accused Assam al-Haddad, a founder of Islamic Relief and advisor to then-President Mohamed Morsi, of using Islamic Relief to fund the Muslim Brotherhood. Worse so, in 2016, the banking giant HSBC shut down Islamic Relief's accounts following a similar decision made by UBS in 2012. And last, in 2017, the UK Charity Commission started investigating Islamic Relief's promotion of extremist preachers. For decades, Islamic Relief has used its position as a leading provider of humanitarian aid to distract from its true mission, the promotion of intolerant extremist ideology and its links to terrorism in the Middle East. My hope as the director of this organization and presiding over the investigation that our Islamist Watch project has looked at is that Islamic Relief will eventually be held accountable in a U.S. court of law and will see the fruition of what's been happening from their underground activities when it comes to light. Like Justice Louis Brandeis, a former Supreme Court appointee, said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. It's time to shed light on IR's activities as it relates to its activity here in the United States and also abroad. Now we're joined by Danny Seaman, the director of the Middle East Forum's Israel office in Jerusalem. Danny has a long history of not just being a radio host on Israel's uh, Voice of Israel, which was his last position before taking up the editorship of Midah.org. Danny is also a 31-year veteran of the Israeli government. 
He previously served as the director of the Israeli government press office from 2000 to 2010. After leaving government and his stint as Voice of Israel in Midah, he was appointed recently as the director of MEF's Israel office. Danny, welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thank you. So can you tell us, right now I understand there's a big conference that's going on in Tel Aviv and also with some visits to Jerusalem where the U.S. Jewish diaspora community is meeting with members of the Israeli government, civil society, religious leaders. Beyond the conversation of what's going on as it pertains to Jewish interests, both here in the U.S. and also there in Israel, what's the atmosphere in terms of the discussion regarding Israel's security threats? A rocket recently uh, hitting almost uh, uh, sort of by hand of God due to a lightning strike, but uh, 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 not necessarily caused by Hamas, the terrorist organization in Gaza and in a town called Beersheba, which almost killed a woman and her three children. Another rocket landing off the Sea of Tel Aviv. But you have over 3,000 diaspora Jews now in Israel. And at the same time, you have incendiary balloons lighting up fields around the Gaza Strip, threatening Israeli high schools, uh, agriculture fields, so on and so forth. What's the uh, the atmosphere in Israel right now as it pertains to the threats that are emanating from both Gaza and the West Bank and also Lebanon and Syria, and how are people reacting to it? Well, what you described is what we consider in Israel just another day. Um, I don't want to make light of the situation, but um, I don't know what it is about us, but we don't, uh, we don't scare easily. Maybe it's 2,000 years of going through literally hell. Uh, that we know how to appreciate what we have here in, in Israel, but it, but it's not normal. Let's let's be serious about this for a moment. I grew up in the town of Ashkelon in Israel since I was 10 years old. My family immigrated here when I was 10. Um, this is 48 years ago, so it's, I've been in Israel for quite a long time. I grew up in, in Ashkelon. My my family still resides there. My mother lives there. It's about uh, 20 kilometers away from from Gaza, so they're, they are they enjoy. Um, being facetious right now, they enjoy missiles from time to time as well. Uh, right now, most of the damage is being caused around the in kibbutzim and the small towns around the border with the Gaza Strip, and this has been going on since May. And what they've been doing, as you described, has been an assault on the border of Israel, trying to get through, burning tires. It's an ecological disaster, which is also it's going to affect the population there. If you can think about this almost day in, day out. Um, the smoke coming from thousands and thousands of tires being burned, and the smoke going in because of the wind coming from the sea, uh, from the west towards the east, it's it's all over these these communities. When I go to Ashkelon, you can actually smell it. So it's clear that this is going to have some kind of health situation uh, and effect on the people there. So in the south, um, it's caused uh, damage to the um, um, what you call it, the, the nature reserves in the area. They they. They, they burn anything. Now, these kites and these balloons, and, and quite often it's also condoms, are sent out with incendiary devices. that They're, they're full of, of, of gasoline, and they're lit on fire, and they land in the fields in Israel, and they land on apartments. Now they've been tying to these things explosives, and now it's, it's not as much reported in the media, but in Judea and Samaria they've been doing it as well. And they've been flying kites towards Jerusalem and in some of the communities in Judea and Samaria, and it's 
from the south of Israel or the center of Israel in, in Ramle, which is about 10 minutes away from Tel Aviv. So these have been landing all over Israel, and now people are telling their children to be careful not to pick up the kites. And this, by the way, is a war crime. This is what people don't, don't get here. Besides the assault on Israel, besides the, the ecological damage, which is also a war crime under international conventions, and the international community is ignoring these things, what you have here is using toys to drawing children. This is a war crime that's being per- perpetuated against the Israeli people, and the international community is silent. You mentioned before the attack last week, uh, last weekend, on a house in Beersheba. Now, just so people understand, these sirens have been going on periodically from time to time, on and off, for, for over a decade now. Um, sometimes you get into a mood, like I said, I'm from Ashkelon, I don't get worked up about these things. And what we saw in Beersheba proves that, by the way, I'm wrong. Because when the siren goes off, I don't get, I said, you know, if your time's up, your time's up. I have a fatalistic attitude to this. This mother woke up, she has 15 seconds, 15 seconds. And she heard the siren in her sleep in the middle of the night. She had three little children with her. She ran with them to the secure room. Now, every house in Israel since the Gulf War 20 years ago, 20-some years ago already, had to, had to have in a new homes built a secure room. It's a fortified room in the homes. She picked up her kids, ran to that room, and the house was demolished. Everything was destroyed in the house except for that one room, which proves that the precautions we take are working in our, in our favor. And by the way, it's working in the favor of everybody in this region. Israelis are facing defensive measures. But if the family had been killed, if three children had been murdered by this missile, there would be a call for Israel to take action and end this threat against Israel. And, and imagine, imagine, imagine what would have happened. Imagine what would have happened if, God exactly. forbid, there and was a, some loss of life but, but, or an injury to three children and a mother. And here's the thing. It comes out in a report from a security cabinet protocol, and this was a quote from Justice Minister, the Israeli Justice Minister, Ayala Chaked, that the reason why the rocket went off was because of almost a stroke of two points of divine intervention. One, a lightning strike hits a circuit that's attached to this autonomous firing device that's linked to the two rockets, one that hits the house in Beersheba that you're talking about, and two, one that lands off the coast of Tel Aviv that I alluded to earlier. But then another point of divine intervention is almost as if, though, as you said beforehand, this woman, lying in bed, wakes up at the first second, takes this first child at the third second, the the second child at the fifth second, the third child at the eighth second, and has seven seconds to get to this secure room, and the entire house is demolished, destroyed, obliterated by this rocket. But it wasn't that the Hamas had intentionally fired it. But at the same time, let's not ignore the fact that this shows us something greater. Hamas is pointing rockets at Israeli civilian centers and populations, and they still would have been responsible for this, even if they didn't have their hand on the literal firing mechanism, because they are poised at a stance that is ready for war at any second, whether it be caused by a strike of lightning or more nefarious intent. So let's speak more about the condition that Israelis live in on a day-to-day basis and how their leadership is facing the conflict. Now, the project that you lead in Israel, something which has been in the mind of the founder of our organization since 1999, a way to approach wars and conflict, is 
diametrically opposed to the traditional way of trying to solve Middle East violence, at least as it pertains to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'd like to bring up a news report that came out two days ago in the Times of Israel, originally reported on Israel's Channel 10 News, and I'd like to get re- your reaction to this, uh, to, to this story. Uh, quoting from the Times of Israel, According to a Channel 10 News report, which cited four Western diplomats with knowledge of the matter, President Trump told French President Emmanuel Macron during a recent meeting that he was prepared to pressure Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to accept the administration's long-gestating peace initiative once it is unveiled, mirroring pressure already leveled against the Palestinians. President Trump was quoted by the source as saying, I've given a lot to Netanyahu. I moved the embassy to Jerusalem. We give Israel $5 billion a year. And just my own comments, $3.8 billion, but still it's a lot of money. I can be tough with Netanyahu on the peace plan, just like I've been tough on the Palestinians. So is this to be believed that the traditional stance of American peacemakers and presidents since November of 1988, when George Shultz, the then Secretary of State, in the waning days of the Reagan administration, issued a letter granting equal status to the PLO as a negotiating partner, at least with American recognition, to be able to go tit for tat with the Israeli government, something that can be negotiated. Now, I'm not talking about trying to find a a negotiated solution, but a negotiated end to conflict. Have the Palestinians, for the past 30 years, proven themselves as a partner that's willing to sit down and acknowledge a Jewish state insofar as they have an expectation to have the Israelis recognize a Palestinian state, and if not, what is the alternate approach to ending Palestinian violent behavior against the Jewish state of Israel? Well, you know, it's nice in theory, and it's and it works nicely when you're talking about two sides that happen to to agree with the preconditions. But what you have here is one side that wants to destroy the other. Uh, you know, you don't have to put pressure on Israel. If we have a serious partner on the other side, as we proved when you had the situation with Jordan and the situation with Egypt, we're more than happy to, to make whatever concession is necessary in order to reach a serious uh, peace agreement. And you can even question the peace agreement with them. But this happened uh, under one circumstance. Egypt tried in 1948, in 1956, in 1967, and finally in 1973 to destroy the state of Israel, and they failed. For the Jordanians, it took them three times, and they understood in 67 they didn't join in 73 because they already had had enough. They understood that they were defeated. They understood that there was no way of destroying Israel. So for them, the alternative in that case was, okay, enough of trying to destroy them. Let's have an agreement. They got everything they wanted. And you can say if it's a good piece or bad piece, look, I'd much rather have the situation as we have with Jordan and Egypt as we have it today than it was 30-some, 40 years ago. It's much better off. At least you don't have the tensions and there's not constant war. With the Arabs who call themselves Palestinian, uh, an entity created to undermine the legitimacy of Jewish claims to to nationhood and to self-determination, what you have here is it's not appeasement. It's encouraging them to continue. With, uh, and, you know, Israel has offered them everything they claim to want, but you have Hamas. You can't ignore the existence of Hamas. Hamas says, no, occupation is 1948. They don't accept our, our presence here. Now, the public, you know, that's the leadership. The people themselves, they elected them. They voted for them. They supported. But when the end of the day, as we've learned with the Jordanians and, and even with the Palestinians who live in Judea and Samaria and the Gaza Strip, the public itself wants, like every person, they want to live normal lives. They get uh, up in, in arms because of their leadership. But if their leadership understands 
And this is where the pressure has to be put to let them understand, look, if you continue with this, you're not going to get anything, meaning you've lost UNRWA, you've lost Jerusalem, and they have to continue understanding they're going to lose until, because Israel won. If there was a violation of international laws here, it was in 1948 when they decided against UN resolutions to attack the state of Israel. Now, they were in their right to oppose the creation of the state of Israel or to oppose the UN resolution. What they weren't in the right to was take action and violence and go to war. Now, they tried to victimize us. We did not become victims. We refused to do that in 48. We success, succeeded in not having that happen in 48 and succeeded not having that happen in 67. So they didn't succeed in victimizing us, and now they're playing the victim card. But they lost. And if the sooner they understand that, the sooner they understand that Israel is here to stay, the sooner their leadership accepts that, then we can reach a serious resolution. And Israel, as it has proven in the past, is more than willing to come towards them because we want to resolve the situation. But have, have, have the Palestinians have the Palestinians their yeah, desire to destroy Israel. Have the Palestinians actually lost if they don't acknowledge the victory of the other exactly. side? I mean I mean, you know, we can say that from the American Western, any rational actor that observes this as a third party or even those who are involved in it from the sides of the victor would say that the Palestinians still think that they have a fighting chance to push the Jewish residents of Israel into the sea, or to, as they just said in a recent documentary, have them return to the countries where they came from. Let's, let's break that down for a second. You have Jewish residents and citizens of the state of Israel that emanated from two distinct geographical locations. One from the West, those who came after the Holocaust, those who came before the Holocaust. You have the original residents of Hebron, of Jerusalem, of Tiberias, of uh, Tzafat, that have been there for thousands of years, arguably. It's not like there's ever been a time that there has not been a Jewish presence in Israel. But you also had those of the Ashkenazi variety that came before the Holocaust and after the Holocaust. But you have a second distinct population of Israelis that emanate from Morocco, from Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Iran, and other North African and Middle Eastern countries. So if the Palestinians are saying, go back home, Af Af Afghanistan, Bukhari, whatever you want to, you know, the, the, 90, yeah, uh, the yeah, 96 yeah, different yeah. languages and, 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 and locations right. that are spoken in different Israeli households. So going according to, to the Arab logic, they have a UN resolution, Kaftet November, right? November 29th, uh, 29th. 2000, uh, 1947. And the UN, international law, votes on granting the right for there to be a Jewish and a Palestinian entity. In May of the following year, seven Arab armies invade in direct opposition to a United Nations resolution. They end up having to get to a, an armistice, the Arab countries and, and the Palestinians that they represent, after Israel wins its war of independence. And then you have a complete flip, a 180 of what takes place from the Arab perspective on international law versus the Israeli perspective. Israel is born out of an international resolution granting its sovereignty. But at the same time, I would argue that there was a Jewish right to sovereignty in that land since the beginning of time. But that's something that's that's more of an Israeli perspective. But it had the uh, the, 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 the censure or, or, or the approval of the international community to exercise that right to sovereignty. And then... That's the only one international act 
that the Israelis are granted by the Arab world, insofar as the Arabs took part in that voting process. And they oppose international law, which then leads to the main point of their consternation, which is saying, you know what? We are saying the United Nations is the vehicle to use to condemn Israel, even though in its point of origin, we as Arab states went off against an international resolution. So look at the, the rank hypocrisy that is present here. And then even to go farther, I think that we have to go back to 47 and 48. We have to get the Palestinians as an American, and I think you as an Israeli, also me as an Israeli too, but I'm speaking with my American hat on here. Only when the Palestinians recognize that UN vote, only when they recognize the Jewish right to exercise sovereignty in their ancestral homeland, is there a way for us to get some kind of modicum of acceptance. And until then, they're not going to acknowledge any loss that they've had on their side. And I think it's incumbent upon Israel to force the Palestinians to accept the fate that was determined for them in 1947. Your response? Absolutely. I can't argue with that. But look at this from the Arab position at the moment. It's not only them holding that belief. When they are constantly encouraged, sometimes by American administrations, but especially Europeans, who constantly let them understand that they don't have to do anything, they don't have to accept Israel, they can violate international law, they can commit war crimes. We're going back to the issue with Beersheba. After that happened, there was a concern that Israel would take defensive actions. Suddenly you had the UN and the EU asking people to calm down. For eight months they haven't said a word. Suddenly this week they, they request that Israel show restraint and both sides show restraint, and they want to see if Israel has not used excessive force in response to what's been going on on the border with Gaza. So what they're doing is signaling to the Arabs that they can literally get away with murder. So why should they want it? So why should they understand how bad their predicament is? Now, they don't have to, they don't have to accept Israel. What they have to accept the fact is that their lives can be that much better if they understand and accept the fact that Israel is a fact and, and, and exists here, and they're going to have to live with it under these circumstances, meaning there's no right of return, and the refugee status is over with, and they're not going to be, uh, there's not going to be a Palestinian state in, within the borders of the state of Israel. Whatever the resolution is, that's something different. Right now there has to be an acceptance of the fact that they're not equal partners in this peace treaty, and as it has happened throughout history, one side wins, the other side loses, that's when you can resolve the situation. And until they internalize that thought, and until Europeans and the United Nations, and even American administrations, even though this administration has been very good in, in pushing that, they have to understand that you cannot give them uh, you know, the, these mixed signals. They have to understand that this is Israel's victorious, this is Israel's here as a fact, they have to encourage the Arabs to understand that and get off. You know, they would not accept violence by anybody in the world. Why are they tolerating it with the Arabs? And I think it's so I think it's incumbent. It's not only I, I think it's Israel, in, it's the international community. I, I think it's incumbent upon both the U.S. government and the Israeli government to start forcing the hand of the Palestinians right. to move in that direction. Of course. Danny Seaman, thanks for joining us this morning. My pleasure. After these messages, Winfield Meyer, director of Campus Watch. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in, from Morocco to Iran, 
from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM. We're now joined by Winfield Myers, the director of Campus Watch, a project of the Middle East Forum. Mr. Myers got his start with his career after studying at the University of Georgia, Tulane, Michigan, and Louisiana, a a recovering academic, if we will, in taking up the uh, first managing editor of the American Enterprise Institute's magazine, and then becoming CEO of the Democracy Project Incorporated, which he co-founded. Mr. Myers also served as Senior Editor and Communications Director at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Winfield, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be with you. Thanks. So what can you tell us about, if, if I were to, to, to read Campus Watch's website, what's the top story right now as it pertains to the Middle East studies uh, programs in the United States in terms of colleges, universities, and Islamic studies programs? What, what's really getting under your skin this morning? <laughs> well, the, the top article right now is a new one we've just put up by our Campus Watch fellow, A.J. Kashetta who teaches at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, AJ has a, an article up on a, a conference that occurred last week in Istanbul, Turkey, that perfectly illustrates the sordid connections between American Middle East Studies professors, terrorist supporters, which is no exaggeration in this case, Islamists, and an Islamist authoritarian regime. And in this case, uh, about a half dozen American academics flew over to Istanbul to take part in this conference, which was chaired by none other than Sami Al-Aryan. Who's, uh, Al-Aryan, who's, who's Professor Al-Aryan? Okay, he, he may ring a bell to some of our listeners. Uh, several years ago, while a computer engineering professor at the University of South Florida, uh, Al-Aryan was arrested and eventually served prison time for uh, pleading guilty to being a former chair of, a, of a, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, board where Al-Aryan was raising money, as he admitted, for this U.S.-designated terrorist organization. So he cooled his heels in the federal penitentiary for a while. Uh, Eventually, in 2015, as part of another plea bargain, he was expelled to Turkey, to Erdogan's Turkey, uh, an increasingly authoritarian and absolutely Islamist regime, which uh, welcomed him with open arms, and he now has a job there, several appointments uh, in Turkey. So wait, um, wait, wait a second. You have a professor who was teaching impressionable 18 and 19-year-old students by day, raising money for a U.S.-designated foreign terror organization at night, serving time in a federal penitentiary, 
He's deported from the United States as a result of a plea bargain that he takes with the U.S. government. And there are still American professors who are willing to go meet with him albeit in a foreign country? Oh, they're, they're eager to. They're eager to. They flew over. This is just par for the course. And it gets even worse because the, um, the lead professor, I would say the most prominent member of this group, is a Georgetown professor by the name of Jonathan Brown. Jonathan Brown isn't simply himself a convert to Islam, and as we have labeled him, outright an Islamist. He has defended the existence of the institution of slavery within Islam, proudly, no, not backing down at all on this. So he has a very plush appointment at Georgetown University. Uh, he is director of the Al-Walid Center for Muslim Christian Understanding, a Saudi-funded center uh, right there on the Potomac, um, where it propagates uh, Islamist and Wahhabi propaganda throughout the country. It's a very powerful force, uh, funded uh, by $20 million grant in 2005 from Saudi Prince Abulid bin Talal. So not only does he do that, he also is Sami al-Aryan's son-in-law. He married Sami al-Aryan, the terrorist supporter's daughter, Layla. Layla al-Aryan, this is all in the family, uh, is a writer for the Qatari-owned Al Jazeera network. Uh, Qatar, of course, being a supporter of terrorism itself. And uh, his son, uh, Sami Arian's son, Abdullah, got his Ph.D. at Georgetown University and teaches at Georgetown's University Doha, Qatar campus. So you have the whole, this whole sordid family, and in just that one family you see, uh, in a sense, a, a, a microcosm of what has happened to Middle East studies in America. Terrorist supporters are fine. Why not marry their daughters? Why not fly to Istanbul? Uh, and in doing so, lend support to a regime that has, that has jailed and fired thousands and thousands of academics throughout Turkey. And um, <clears throat> doesn't bother them one bit in the world. Uh, it's, just, it's kind of par for the course in American Middle East studies. There were other people who went there from the United States as well, including, including Joseph Mossad of Columbia University, uh, infamous for his attacks on Jew uh, Jewish students, uh, Nader Hashemi of the University of Denver, who is an apologist for the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, there's Sarah Shields of UNC Chapel Hill, who is a strong BDS supporter, and various others. These are all power for the course. And as shocking as this may seem, uh, unfortunately, it really is just sort of the way business is done in American academia today. So, Winfield, I thought we would start a new segment before I get to my next question, which is inviting listener comment and questions, especially sure. as it pertains to some of our uh, issues that we may not be able to tackle every broadcast, but we can try to get them on live. So, if you're listening right now and you'd like to call in, please dial toll-free 888-329-3306. 888-329-3306. One more time, because I know that when I'm listening to radio, I sometimes don't get the number at the first once or two tries. 1-888-329-3306. So, Winfield, how is it acceptable that there is this sort of professorial logic of, on one hand, you're trying to create the next best cream of the crop coming from Ivy League institutions like Georgetown and Columbia Universities. And then on the other hand, you're going overseas to meet with terrorists. I think there's another 
professor that you're uh, quite aware of from San Francisco State University, uh, Rabba Abdul Hadi, I believe, from the Center for um, Race and Resistance or Resistance in, uh, in Diaspora Affairs uh, Communities. You can correct me about her professorship. But how is it that you have East Coast professors like Massad and uh, and Jonathan Brown who are meeting with these guys, and you also have the same uh, epidemic of professorial misconduct. I would even say it on the bordering. I would think it's it's it, it's borderline illegal in terms of what they're doing, of maybe even giving material support to terror organizations. Can you give us the more uh, enlightened example of what's happening at San Francisco State? Sure, at San Francisco State, um, Rabab Abdulhadi has, among other things. Um, and she's a very strong BDS supporter, we should point out. She has said that Zionists are not welcome on campus. She wrote that on the uh, Facebook page of the Ethnic Studies program she heads. Um, she has arranged for not simply terrorist supporters or people who turn a blind eye to terrorism, but for actual convicted terrorists who have served time in prison to fly over to the West Bank and take part in a conference at... Um, uh, the uh, University in Nablus, a strong supporter of uh, terrorism, and uh, where uh, which has been called uh, <clears throat> by one of our uh, peers in Washington a, um, uh, a a greenhouse for terrorists, a greenhouse for martyrs who are going to go forward and join Hamas and other terrorist organizations that take part uh, against Israel, and she has gotten away with this pretty much scot free. Um, she signed uh, a, uh, an agreement uh, with the uh, university to um, do student exchanges, to have cultural exchanges. I don't know that there have been any student exchanges just yet, but it is a, it's a very dangerous precedent. Um, it's probably a more extreme example in some ways than you might find among others. Most don't literally fly terrorists around. But it's the kind of um, whitewashing turning a willful blind eye toward terrorism, as long as it's directed in her view and in the view of uh, Jonathan Brown and others against the right people, the right people being, of course, mainly Israelis, also Americans, and in general, any Westerner. So it's a, it's a refusal to tackle this obvious evil and to call it what it is, and an effort instead to sweep it under the rug, pretend that it's really nothing going on, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Is what a lot of these people say. And um, again, as long as the as long as it's not their ox that's being gored, they're perfectly happy with that. And, they and, don't do anything. And, and in this case, one man's professor is another man's uh, terrorist supporter. So, um, right. I, I think that one of the other things that we have to look at is you mentioned this earlier. You alluded to it by a gift from uh, Prince Alouid bin Talal in 2005 to Georgetown's Middle East Studies program and also right. uh, Qatari support for these programs. Why right. is the U.S. government allowing foreign countries to sponsor programs that incubate extremism on American college campuses? What, what's, what's the history of this, and what can we do to stop it? You know, when you run into this kind of problem, you, you're always going to face First Amendment issues on what they can say within the classroom, within their First Amendment rights. And you also have, uh, in addition to that, no matter what they say, even if it's something that goes beyond what the First Amendment would protect, which would it certainly include promoting terrorism, 
you know, you, this is the old saying, you can't scream fire in a crowded theater. You can't walk out into your classroom and say, let's go kill some Jews in Israel. That's a great idea. Let's do that. I mean, you, you can't get away with that. Uh, and most of them don't go that far. They won't walk at, you know, literally say, I want to kill Zionists. I mean, they, they're, you get that every now and then from student groups. Um, most professors know not to step over that kind of line. But what, for me, what this really comes down to is um, a sense of professional responsibility, a sense of teaching rather than proselytizing, rather than indoctrinating. And you have to look at the, what has happened to American academe. We, we see this kind of radicalism, uh, principally in Middle East studies, which we follow very closely. That's Campus Watch's mission. Uh, you see it in other fields as well. Uh, with people making comments constantly. Think of Ward Churchill, the former professor at the University of Colorado. This is an example of a man who did eventually lose his job, uh, who said that he was glad 9-11 occurred because the people working in the Twin Towers were, quote, little Eichmanns, referring to Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi, of course, Hitler's protege. Um, he lost his job because he claimed falsely to be uh, an American Indian, among other things, and he, uh, kind of like Elizabeth Warren maybe, but he, um, he eventually ran into trouble with that. But uh, it, it, it tells you, it's a window into the soul of academia. It's a very sick-souled um, institution, writ large across the country, um, in which professors are hired not based on their uh, immense knowledge, uh, rigorously obtained and objectively applied to their field, but into whether or not they agree with the reigning uh, far left uh, of the um, of, of whatever department they are being hired by. Uh, Winfield, uh, we we have a we have a call on hold from uh, Victor in Philadelphia. Uh, right. I, I'd like to go to him if we can uh, uh, put Victor on air. Victor, welcome to the program. Hello, Mr. Roman. Good morning. I listen every week. How are you? I have a question about Mr. Khashoggi you mentioned in the beginning of the show. In Russia, they're killing journalists all the time. So why now United States so concerned about Mr. Khashoggi? It's it, it very tragic. But is it because Trump or because no one cares about Russia, instead Saudi Arabia? Uh, so, uh, Victor, thanks for the question. It's not necessarily on point as it relates to uh, Mr. Myers, but Winfield also moonlights as a uh, as a Middle East uh, analyst in addition to his work on campus. But I, I think, Winfield, this points to a, uh, a pretty good question in terms of looking at double standards as it associates itself, not just in the realm of academe, but also in the way that you, the United States exerts its foreign policy, where it's looking at the murder of one journalist, but it's not commenting on the rendition policies of the Erdogan government as relates to, I think, seven different kidnapping operations that have taken place by Turkish intelligence services, and then they find themselves all of a sudden waking up in an Istanbul prison uh, rather sure. than being murdered in a uh, an Istanbul uh, uh, consulate. But um, what do you think about this uh, Khashoggi affair and, and, and sort of the doublespeak that's coming out from, uh, uh, on one side, the way that um, some individuals in the United States have commented on this, and then their lack of comment on other nefarious instances of uh, extrajudicial or extraterritorial action. Sure. This kind of moral outrage is often selective and political, and I think it is in this, cha- in this case. Um, I think Saudi Arabia's, um, in their eyes, mistake this time is to move closer to an alliance with Israel against Iran. And we've seen this among the Middle East studies professors that we keep track on. In fact, the same uh, author, A.J. Kachetta, 
uh, wrote an article for us not long ago on how Middle East studies professors who for years and years and years defended uh, Saudi Arabia uh, gladly took their money from Prince Al-Walid, King Fahd, and others um, now have suddenly found, suddenly discovered that bad things happen in Saudi Arabia. Uh, what's the difference? What has happened? Well, uh, you have a, a regime now in Saudi Arabia uh, with Mohammed bin Salman who has moved closer to Israel. And in Middle East studies and in American academia in general, one doesn't move close to Israel. One doesn't defend Israel. This is, this is, a, this is verboten uh, because, according to Middle East studies professors, uh, so many of them, and I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush, there are obviously exceptions to this, but in general, they are boycott, divestment, and sanction supporters. They don't mind singling out Israel at all for condemnation while they turn a blind eye to North Korea and China and Cuba and uh, countries that are genuinely totalitarian and uh, torture their people with great regularity, which Israel does not do. Um, <clears throat> so when Israel moves closer to Saudi Arabia, or the Saudis move closer to Israel uh, in an alliance against uh, the Shiite Crescent uh, from Iran, then these professors object vehemently. So those who were silent for decades and decades while the Saudis did everything that they've done over the decades, uh, now are suddenly upset. So it's very selective outrage. Why don't they object to what's going on in Turkey? Well, we've just seen these professors over there. Um, a lot of them are Islamists themselves, a lot of the professors that we study. They're either are literally Islamists or, like John Esposito, for example, who preceded Jonathan Brown as director of the Albany Center at Georgetown. He may not be literally an Islamist, but he's a fellow traveler. He's never going to speak out against anything uh, Islamist. In fact, back in the 90s, Esposito was writing books claiming that Islamism was the path to democracy in the Middle East. Right. These are the I mean, uh, that worked out in Morsi. The the useful idiots and the uh, Islamist yeah. enablers that are, exactly uh, are that are that are giving license to the activities of not just the other professors in their field that are distorting and warping what Americans should actually be looking at, and then teaching a whole new generation of what they should be looking at, but also the other way of approaching this from their enablers, right? We have two different or, or three different strata. We have the state sponsors that are often Islamist countries giving funds to universities that give these guys a, a podium to speak on, and then their message is spread through the credibility they get from that perch, whether it be in media or in conferences like what took place in Istanbul. Uh, again, you can call in at 1-888-329-3306, 888-329-3306. Winfield, we're going to go to a break, but I'm going to ask you to stay with us. After these messages, Winfield Myers back with us on Middle East Forum Century Radio. WWDD. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. 
We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM. We're joined right now again by Winfield Myers, the director of the Middle East Forum's Campus Watch program. We haven't had any call-ins, but Winfield, let's have just a general conversation about some of the things that are going on at the Forum. I mean, we speak a lot about academe and, and in some of our other programs, but I'd like to uh, kind of um, you know shoot the breeze a little bit about what we're thinking on some of these issues. So I'm going to come up with a topic. You give me a 30-second response on what you think the, uh, the American response should be to uh, different ills and ailments of Middle East foreign <laughs> policy, all right? I'll do my best. All right. Right now, we have the rise of Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom, and he has embraced Islamists and anti-Semites on his rise to potentially being the UK's next prime minister. What's the problem with Corbyn in your eyes, especially as it relates to his views on Israel and other Middle Eastern allies of his, which actually end up being terrorists that are targeting friends of ours? Sure. Yeah, Corbyn is really a, a seedy and terrible character who I think the reason he is in power right now over the Labor Party in Britain is because of the red-green alliance that we see, the red, uh, far-left, green, Islamist alliance that goes across American universities. Um, His views of Israel are hostile. His views of Jews in Britain should scare the pants off of every well-meaning citizen of the United Kingdom because he is uh, an overt anti-Semite. He hangs out with anti-Semites. Uh, it's pretty difficult to deny all of this, and that he still has the power that he has and hasn't been renounced by his own party is re- truly frightening. It tells you how far down the whole um, Britain has gone in some ways, especially leftist politics uh, in Britain, uh, here at home as well as on the continent. We have a, a call-in from Janine in Philadelphia. Janine, welcome to the program. Do you have a question for Winfield? Yes. I have a daughter. She's about to start college next year. She's going to be taking Middle Eastern classes. What do I look out for in professors? How can I vet her professors? Thanks, Janine. Winfield? It's a great great question. I would say first go to our website, uh, Campus Watch. Just Google it. You know, you'll find Campus Watch, part of the Middle East Forum, and put the professor's name into the search box. See if we have anything in our massive archives of tens of thousands of articles on that particular professor. Check uh, against, we have several lists that we keep. Uh, One is of recommended professors, so see if the professor happens to be on that. Um, And then look at, we have a list also called professors to avoid. So if you see uh, his or her name on that, you'll know to avoid it. And then just Google the professor's name and uh, maybe Google it along with the word Israel or BDS and see if you can find out if they have come out in favor or against BDS or if they've slandered Israel or the United States, and try to form a rapid um, view of them. Or you can email us at Campus Watch, too, and we'll be more than happy to help you in any way that we can. 
Thank you, Janine. And, and Winfield, just one last uh, food for thought. What's your take on these midterm elections in terms of how the uh, Middle East studies professors are approaching them? Have you seen any uh, outrageous statements about how uh, the future of America is at stake or what uh, they're hoping for coming out of, of these elections? And not, not approaching this from a partisan perspective, but is there anything especially egregious that you've noticed? Uh, I would say just in general, I, w- I would make a comment that um, the uh, desire for a lower-profile America in the world and a desire for um, a weaker Israel in the world uh, generally comes from the left, just as we just now saw with, with Jeremy Corbyn in the U.K. That's a kind of a, a phenomenon you see across the West. And so I would look out for candidates who call for um, breaking our alliance with Israel, breaking our alliance with Britain and our, some of our other allies, or for uh, ensuring that America has the means of protecting itself, from my perspective, with strong borders, a strong military, uh, in a very, very dangerous and unstable world. Winfield, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Greg. It's been my pleasure. And if you'd like to find more resources about educating yourself on candidates and those who surround themselves, especially as it relates to the far left and Islamist influence in American politics, you can find a series of articles on Islamism and politics at the forum's Islamist Watch website. It's called Islamist Money in Politics. Follow them on Twitter at IMIP or online at Islamist-Watch.org. So we had a pretty exciting program this morning. We started off talking about the uh, rank hypocrisy of Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the trouble that Saudi Arabia finds itself in. We then were able to transition to the latest coming from Israel, and especially right now when you have over 3,000 American Jewish leaders there for their annual conference, the Jewish Federations of North America General Assembly. And we also were able to get a little bit deeper, and I guess right now the midterms of the academic year here in the fall semester as it relates to America's Middle East studies and Islamic studies professors meeting in Turkey, of all places, with a convicted terrorist. Next week on the Middle East Forum, we'll have a new segment, which will be called Ask an Islamist. We'll have a former Islamist fellow of ours being able to answer questions about Islamic doctrine and theology. And beyond that, we'll also have segments related to the latest news coming out of the region and here at home. I'm Greg Roman. Your host on Middle East Forum Century Radio. Have a great week.